We started last week on why trust the Bible, or the question that we were asking was, how can we know that this book, limited to these 66 books from Genesis through Revelation, are in fact the Word of God, and not just a Word of God, but the Word of God, right? And so we emphasized the importance of that definitive article at the front of it. There's lots of religions out there that claim to have words from God, Islam, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, you name it, right? There's lots of religions out there. But how can we know then that we have, that this book, this Bible, is the Word of God? And so um, I've got a few books here, just to, or little, they're not really books, they're booklets to give away. Um, may give away some in the first part of the service, uh, the main service. But can someone just mention what was, what's kind of the model that we're using here in terms of how are the scriptures authenticated? And that's kind of your key word. I mentioned a word last week. How are the scriptures authenticated? Proven to be true. What's that, Andy? Sorry? The can- so there's the canon, but there's one word I'm looking for. It's the blank authenticating, self-authenticating. Well, I saw, I saw VJ, and I saw somebody else there say it too. Did you say it? Okay, you can take a pick. Yeah, there you go. Okay. So these books actually pertain to, I think, what Clint's going to preach on um, here later on. Does anyone, I'll just do one more. Anyone remember then? What we looked at, we looked at some divine qualities of Scripture. What were those divine qualities? We're going to finish off with the last one here this morning. But there was three of them that I had listed out. Three divine qualities that the Scriptures evidence. What's that? Purity. Harmony. And we haven't done the last one, so you can take it. But <laughs> Purity, harmony. That one? Great. So, as an FYI, these little booklets are, they're in the back, um, just on the, on the book stall there. If you're, if you're in need of them, they got, they're just short little things, so this one's on conflict. There's some on forgiveness. Um, how do you love those that you disagree with politically? They're really helpful, just little kind of starter guides. So, as, um, as Grace mentioned, there were these three attributes that we were looking at. Uh, majestic purity, the purity of the Scriptures, not only in their message itself, in that they don't glory in what is obscene, vulgar, but glory in what is pure and true according to God's own nature, but that the, even the transmission of the text to our day, that we can be confident that we have the Word of God in our hands. Now, there's lots we could say about that. We could talk about uh, textual variance and uh, text criticism. Because, yeah, there's, there's variance out there. There's, there's differences between different manuscripts. We, the advantage, though, is that we actually have a ton of manuscript evidence. We have a ton of it, especially compared to other works out there. And so, um, through the science of textual criticism, we can we can kind of piece these things together and we can come to have confidence then that what we have is the Word of God. Then we also looked at the, pure, or the harmony of Scripture, that is its coherence. It fits together so all the parts fit together as a whole. And you just think of uh, how the Bible from front to back fits together as a, as a story, right? It fits together. You have these parallels that you see in Genesis and Revelation. We talked about all those last week. And so there's a, there's a unique harmony to it that, um, that testifies to its uh, divine origins. And as we would expect, right? Because does God contradict himself? Well, no. We know from the scriptures themselves that God does not contradict himself. And so we would expect him to see in the scriptures that there would be a consistency in the message. So there's doctrinal consistency. There is a, a redemptive historical consistency that, that deals with kind of the, the narrative arc of Scripture. And then there's also 
uh, a structural harmony. As I said, we look at kind of these parallels and how, how the scripture is structured with types and prophecies, prophecies made in the Old Testament, prophecies fulfilled in the New Testament. All of these things then, because God is a transcendent and authoritative God ruling over all things, we would expect to find in the scriptures, which is what we do. This morning, though, I want to look now uh, at the third divine quality, and that is the majestic effectiveness and power of the scriptures. So the majestic effectiveness and power. And the word majestic, I'm taking, you remember, from the Westminster Larger Catechism. Westminster Larger Catechism, where it talked about, I'm just going to, I'm going to actually rehash here that, um, that statement. So majestic, uh, or the uh, Westminster Large Catechism asks the question, how does it appear that the scriptures are the word of God? So that's our question. The answer, the scriptures manifest themselves to be the word of God by their majesty and purity, by the consent of all the parts, so that's the harmony that we were talking about, and the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, by their light and power to convince and convert sinners, to comfort and build up believers unto salvation, but the Spirit of God bearing witness by and with the Scriptures in the heart of man is alone able fully to persuade it that they are the very Word of God. So, that's the statement taken from Westminster uh, Larger Catechism. And you see there then that the Bible proves itself, it shows itself to be the Word of God. And it says, by their light and power to convince and convert sinners to comfort and build up believers unto salvation. So what's a passage in the scriptures themselves that kind of demonstrate this very fact? It's power to convince, convert. Yeah, so there's, there's a profitability. It, it, it actually accomplishes something, right? Um. Another, another passage is Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active. It's living and active. It's not a, just a dead book. It's not like, you know, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings or Lewis, his, his series, or any, any other book, right? It's a living and active book. And then the author of Hebrews describes it this way, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So it, it literally, it slices and dices people, right? It, it opens them up. It opens them up to see their own sinfulness. It opens their eyes to see then God and his glory and his purposes. It opens them up to see, most of all, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So that Word of God is living and active. Uh, Psalm 119, Psalm 119, as you guys know, is all about the Word of God, the law of God. It's speaking primarily there of the, um, of the Pentateuch in the original context. But what we see then that it's, it's broadened out and we can, we can incorporate all of God's words throughout redemptive history. But Psalm 119, verse 130 says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. So the point is, is that the Bible does what no other book can do, and the historical evidence speaks for itself. So just take for instance, take for instance how the Bible transforms entire societies beginning with the transformation of individual believers. So in places where the Bible is rejected, or unknown, so think of, a, think of a place where they haven't received God's word at all. They don't have any of this special revelation. Well, often in those places, you can look there and the evidence speaks for itself. Right? You'll see the devaluation of human life. It's not valued as it ought to be. Uh, dishonesty and crime, it skyrockets. Uh, people are living in bondage to fear of death, superstitions, all sorts of moral corruption. Uh, conversely, in those cultures then that draw from the wisdom of the scriptures and have a mass of even true Christians who live under its authority and are then kind of salt and light in that sense, the opposite effect often takes place. 
Now, you have to qualify this and say, of course, none of us are utopians. So we don't say that just because God's word is, you know, somewhat known in Canada or it's, it's had a witness, that it means that we are some utopian society. Again, the evidence speaks for itself contrary to that, right? But I would actually argue that the fact that the trajectory we're on is actually an indication of people moving away from the scriptures. They're, they continue to suppress it, reject it, and so as the culture basically chucks that to the side, it actually has negative effects, even societally, certainly at individual levels, um, but I'd say even more broadly. So we're not utopian, thinking that all wickedness, uh, all violence, all injustice is going to be curbed in this world. However, we do see, though, that when the Bible is presented, it actually does have this living and active uh, work that it does. And it, and it can, ultimately, it begins with convincing and converting individual believers, right? Converting them to faith in Jesus Christ alone, and then they walk in submission to the Word, and as I said, through that ministry, they become salt and light, and actually then, uh, it actually has a positive effect, more broadly speaking. So, this is taken again from, uh, it's taken actually from a commentary on the Westminster Larger Catechism. Uh, just kind of paraphrasing it, it says, where the Bible is known and believed, wickedness and crime are curbed, human life and property are secured, education is advanced, institutions of mercy and care for the sick, poor, and destitute are created, and civil liberty is honored and guarded. You don't have that, you know, just compare Christianity with what you see in Many of the uh, many of the, the cultures that are let's say Hinduism or Buddhism, there's not the same valuation of human life, not the same pursuit of justice. You don't see education really being promoted in the same way, and so um, we see here that the effectiveness and power of the word itself is is another witness to it being from God, because we remember that God is not He's not distant. He is active in this world, right? He is over and above it, so he's not tied to it in the, you know, in the Hindu sense that he's, just, he's one with the world. But he is active doing things in the world, and so we would expect then his word to be doing and accomplishing even his purposes, Isaiah 55. Um, if you turn with me to 1 Thessalonians, Paul, uh, he's... The book of 1 Thessalonians is basically just a, a great encouragement to the Thessalonian believers who were afraid of that maybe some of them had, had missed out on the hope of the resurrection. So Paul encourages them. And it's a book just filled with thanksgiving for these believers. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 that he has assurance that God loves these people and in fact that God has elected them, so chosen them before the foundation of the world, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, he says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So you see that as Paul brought the word of God to these believers, what did it do? Well, it, it came in power. It came in power. There was a, a unique power. You think of Romans chapter 1. The gospel is the what? The power of God for salvation uh, to everyone who believes. And in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Which is another unique thing about the Bible is that not only does it transform individuals, but the kind of transformation it does is unique in that it's actually contrary to the natural inclinations of humanity in that it convicts us of sin. We talked about that a little bit last week, right? The scope of God's word being the glory of God, not the glory of man, but God's glory. Well, that's contrary to human nature. And so to be convicted of sin, to be convicted of our need for Christ and that we are unable to save ourselves and that only one man, namely Jesus Christ, uh, the last Adam, only he can save us from the judgment to come. Well, that, that itself is something that is what God would do, 
right? And only God would do. It's contrary then to the natural impulse of man to look to the self, um, to look inward for their own salvation. Later on, if you look down in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul specifies that this word that they accepted and that they brought, it wasn't just any word. Notice there in cha- uh, chapter 2, verse 13, he says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So the word of God is at work in believers, and that itself then testifies to its authenticity as being, uh, as being more than just a regular book written by man, but it is, in fact, the word of God itself. So those are the kind of the three um, divine qualities. It's purity, it's harmony, and it's effectiveness and power. As I said, I'm taking a lot of this from Michael Kruger. Uh, you can go look at, he's got lots of great articles online, Michael Kruger. Just type in Michael Kruger. Uh, he's got a website there. Um, but these, these, lots of this stuff is taken from him. So these features, they then reflect what we said are the attributes of God himself, who is pure, who cannot contradict himself, and who has all power and authority and is accomplishing his purposes in the world. And so we see that uh, reflected in the scriptures themselves. John Calvin, just to sum up this point, he states that the highest proof of scripture is uniformly taken from the character of him whose word it is. The volume of sacred scripture very far surpasses all other writings. If we look at it with clear eyes and unbiased judgment, it will forthwith present itself with a divine majesty which will subdue our presumptuous opposition and force us to do it homage. In other words, as we talked about last week, to come under it, to live under its authority. So when you look at it, you see the majesty, and then, even as it did for the Thessalonians, it comes in power and full conviction, and we live then humbly under this word as the very word of God itself. So then, how, just thinking of you know, some objections, well, how, how then do you respond to those who reject the Bible? So some people will come to say, well, I don't see the Bible as majestic. Right? You go talk to them, well, yeah, you see it, but I see it. So who, who's to say it's true? Rather, people will say, well, actually, I see it as oppressive and archaic. Right? The, the, the content of its message, how can a God you know, do these kinds of things? It's out of step with the times. Uh, someone might also say then, if the Bible is so majestic and pure, if there's so much harmony to it, why don't more people see it and why aren't more people moved to embrace it as true if it has this inherent power to it? Well, to answer this, we need to consider the very important theological component of the self-authenticating nature of Scripture, and that is the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so I don't have the notes in front of you today, but this is on your notes from last week if you still have them. The internal witness of the Holy Spirit. So God himself, by the Holy Spirit, brings non-Christians to recognize the voice of God even in the pages of Scripture. The Holy Spirit inspired the authors of the Bible to speak his very words, and the Holy Spirit also illumines the readers of Scripture not only to understand what the authors intended to convey in their words, but also to see those very words as, what Paul said, the Word of God itself. Okay, so the Spirit not only uh, inspired in, in that sense, it wasn't only breathed out and given to these apost- prophets and apostles as divine revelation, but the Spirit is also at work presently not in giving new revelation, but in illuminating and opening eyes to see the meaning of the text and to see its significance, its, its essence, rather, as the, as the very word of God. So, Jesus, remember in John chapter 10, what did Jesus say about the sheep? The sheep 
hear my voice, right? The sheep hear his voice. Uh, Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, he says the natural person, that's that's the non-Christian, you remember this antithesis, we've got the natural and the spiritual person, we see it all over the scriptures, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. These, they don't accept them, right? For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So very plainly there, right from the scriptures themselves, we would expect then that there's going to be opposition, that there's going to be people out there who are not going to see the majesty, uh, the, the purity, the harmony, the power and effectiveness of this word because why? Well, they're, they're natural and they do not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Again, that Romans 1 paradigm of they suppress the truth. What's evident in nature, they push down. What's evident in the scriptures, they do the same. They, they suppress it. They reject it in order to just continue uh, following their own passions. So in order then to understand and accept the Bible as the word of God, one needs to be a spiritual person, or as Paul says, to have the mind of Christ. So there's something from outside that needs to happen to the individual. Namely, there's something supernatural that has to happen in order for them to embrace and see the divine fingerprints themselves in these words. So Lydia, you remember in Acts chapter 16, she's a great example of that. Lydia, the seller of purple, Acts 16, 14, said the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So the Lord is the the active agent, the ultimate cause for her eyes to be, or her heart rather, to be opened to even listen, to receive, to pay attention to what was said by the Apostle Paul. It's really key that the internal witness of the Holy Spirit is key because it emphasizes then the supernatural component to all of our apologetics and evangelism, right? So we've been emphasizing that time and time again, that yes, there's, there's arguments we can bring, we need to think, we want to engage with people respectfully, but the ultimate reason why people come to believe is always because of the work of the Spirit of God, who transfers them from a kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And that's key, right? Because the glory of God is preeminent, God is most concerned about his glory, so it would make sense then that in the methodology we use, he's not going to be glorifying man, right? We don't get glory by simply presenting a message. That's, we're, we're ambassadors. The ambassador doesn't get the glory. He's pointing then to the message of his superior, and it is actually then the superior who is doing that work to convince people. So again, John Calvin, speaking of the internal witness of the Spirit, he says, our conviction of the truth of Scripture must be derived from a higher source than human conjectures, judgments, or reasons, namely the secret testimony of the Spirit. So in other words, arguments alone are insufficient to convince people that the Bible is God's Word and that these 66 books in particular are God's Word. Uh, Calvin continues and says, The same Spirit, therefore, who spoke by the mouth of the prophets must penetrate our hearts in order to convince us that they faithfully delivered the message with which they were divinely entrusted. That's from Calvin's Institutes. So the fact that we only receive the Bible, that we receive the Bible as God's Word, um, as I said, that, does, that brings all glory to God. It brings all glory to God and it takes, it, it takes the spotlight off of us even as his agents who then present and give reasons for the hope that is in us, who give reasons for why we believe the Bible is God's word. We ultimately recognize then that it is the internal secret work of the Spirit who 
opens people's eyes to accept it as the word of God. Now, as we think about the internal witness of the Spirit, we recognize that it works both at the individual level as you know, individual believers. So the Lord opens the eyes of Lydia, as I said. But there's also a recognition that as we think of the New Testament and the emphasis on the corporate, the body of Christ, that as Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, right, we, plural, have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. So there's a corporate dimension to this witness as well, which is actually very important as it pertains then to the question, well, how then do we know that we've got the right books in our Bible? How do we know that we have the right books in our Bible? Which is then the question of canon. The question of canon. So what does canon mean? Canon simply means a rule or a standard. Okay, so when we're talking about the canon of Scripture, we're speaking of then these 66 books, as I said, from Genesis to Revelation, limited to these 66 books, which are then our rule or standard, our ultimate authority. Okay? So the question of canon then is, okay, fine, I'll grant you that God speaks, but how do we know that we've got his words? How can we be, how can we be certain that we have his words and that there shouldn't be, that there's not other books that we've missed? You know, maybe, maybe we should include the Apocrypha or these Apocryphal books from the second, third, fourth century, you know, the Gnostic Gospels. Why don't we include them? So that's the question of canon. And as I said, this, is all, this all ties then to the internal testimony of the Spirit because um, in order to answer that question, how do we know we have the right books, we need to think not only of the qualities, these divine qualities, but also of the corporate reception of these books in the early church. So, for example, Bart Ehrman. How many of you have heard of Bart Ehrman? Bart Ehrman, yeah. If, if you haven't heard of him, it's okay. Don't, don't bother with him right now. But he's, he's a very well-known, um, he's an apostate by his own confession. He went to Moody, uh, Moody College, raised in a Christian home, but he's, he's an apostate. And he's one of the most well-known critics of the Bible in our day. So Michael Kruger, James White, lots of guys have debated Bart Ehrman. And many have been swayed and destabilized by his teachings. Because he doesn't just write for the academy. He writes popular level books that many people, you know, they'll go pick up in chapters and he'll always be coming out with something. And basically, Bart Ehrman's thesis, his argument is that the early church lacked a doctrinal consensus because there was so many forms of Christianity out there, so many forms of religious uh, Christianity so that we can't be certain then that we have any faithful representation of true Christianity here. Rather, these books, these books that we have, they represent basically the winners in history. And so when Constantine came in to power in the 4th century, uh, you know, he basically imposed, well, these are the books in order to gain political control. So he says that there's so much diversity out there in the early church that we can't be sure that we have the right books. This is just... The reason we have this book is because the, the Constantine won out in the end and decided these were the books that we we're going to have. Um, so Bart Ehrman and others, they'll point then to these other apocryphal, and apocryphal just means hidden or secret, these apocryphal books uh, that have been discovered, which were discovered quite late, um, but gospel or books such as the Gospel of Thomas, some of you may have heard of. It's probably one of the most popular Shepherd of Hermas, uh, many other Gnostic Gospels. And they'll say, like, see, look, we've got, we've got all forms of different Christianity, all, all different views of Jesus, so who's to say that we've got the right books right here? Um, but as I said, as we think about then what we've been talking about, the, the divine qualities of Scripture themselves, and then tied in to the internal testimony of the Spirit, we recognize that there is going to be not only individual recognition of these books, but that there is going to be a corporate recognition and reception of these books. Um, 
And of course, as we think about all of this, what you're seeing, I hope, is that defending the scriptures cannot be separated from our theological commitments. So our doctrine of scripture and our doctrine of God actually go together. And of course, we learn our doctrine of scripture or our doctrine of God from our doctrine of scripture, but we also get our doctrine of scripture from our understanding of who God is. As you said, the scriptures bear then the divine fingerprints. So, because we believe that God is at work in this world, that he is opening the eyes of people to see his word, that the sheep will hear his voice, well then we're going to expect, or we ought to expect, that over the course of time, true believers who have the mind of Christ, who have the spirit, are going to come and see these majestic qualities inherent in the Bible and embrace them. And they're going to see that in distinction from other books that don't show those qualities. Okay? So again, it's, it's a theological commitment. We believe that God is at work in this world, that he's providentially ruling over all things. The sheep will hear his voice. So we're going to expect that over time, true believers are going to come to a, an agreement on these are the word of God. They hear the voice of the good shepherd in these words and not in the gospel of Thomas or not in the shepherd of Hermas. So it's a theological uh, commitment. Now, as we're speaking here of the corporate reception of the Bible, I just want to be very clear that when we're speaking of, of this reception of the canonical books, we've got to be very careful to steer clear of what uh, Roman Catholicism and even what neo-Orthodoxy assert when, in terms of the Bible, in a sense, becoming the Word of God. So, the Bible does not become the Word of God either by consent or decree of the church or by personal experience, okay? So, the Roman Catholic conception is that these books, they become canonical when they are recognized as such by the church. So, in a sense, the church actually comes over and says, okay, we're going to pull these into the canon, and it's almost like they're making them canonical by papal decree. The neo-Orthodox interpretation, or sometimes known as the existential, which is made famous by Karl Barth, they argued that the Bible becomes the word of God when the person hears God speaking in the Bible. So, in this view, the Bible is not inherently the word of God, but rather becomes the word of God when God so chooses to use that word. But God is free to use many other words, many other fallible documents in order to speak special revelation to his people. And so there's nothing really exclusively special about this word other than maybe its historical origins. So we're not saying that the Bible becomes the word of God either by a church decree or by individual decree. The Bible... So when, think of this, think of it this way. When Paul wrote Romans, when Paul wrote Romans, when did it become a canonical book? When he wrote Romans, right? As soon as Paul put the pen down and, and finished the book of Romans, it, it was the word of God because we recognize that Second Peter uh, tells us that Paul had been moved by the Spirit to write these words down. So there's a, what some have called an ontological canon that then is later received or recognized as such. But it's not, it's not declared and made to be a canon. It's made to be the canon as soon as Paul, by the inspiration of the Spirit, writes those words. That's when it becomes God's word. Okay? So it's, it's very clear, important to make those distinctions clear um, as we talk about them, the corporate reception of the church. The illustration then that Kruger uh, and others I've heard give is that the role of the church as it relates to recognizing which books are in the Bible and which books are, are truly God's word is that the church is more like a thermometer than a thermostat. So what does a thermostat do? Well, the thermostat changes, right? It changes the temperature in this building. But a thermometer, what does it do? Well, it recognizes what's here. Okay, so that's what the church was doing in those, especially in those first 
a few hundred years after the apostolic age, is they, they were coming to recognize, well, these books, these books bear the divine fingerprints, whereas these books, they don't. Okay? But it wasn't that they were making it canonical in that sense. So I told you the example I talked about with the guy talk, taught at U of, uh, U of T, University of Toronto, you know, who said, well, it was Constantine who made these books canonical. That's kind of the Bart Ehrman thesis. No, the church recognized. The church's posture has always been one of recognition and reception, not imposition of, um, of a status on these books. So then, how do we respond to those who say that the early church was too theologically diverse to have any certainty that these books are the Word of God and it's limited to these 66 books? Well, first, going back, we point to those divine qualities in the books themselves and we could compare them with the apocryphal books. The funny thing is, is that many people have not read the apocryphal books. And when you do, you realize how bonkers they are and actually how out of step and they, they don't cohere with what's written in the scriptures. So it's not like we can just incorporate them and say, well, they're all part of a whole. Well, they don't fit. Even doctrinally, they don't fit. You got these views of, of Jesus who's like a, you know, a skyscraper. It's just, it's, it's completely different doctrinally uh, than what you find in the scriptures. So that, that, was one, that was one way that the church then came to recognize, well, they don't cohere. Right? They don't cohere with the message of the scriptures. Um, the church also came to recognize these books as canonical based on the fact that they had an understanding that there needed to be a certain kind of apostolicity to these works. Right? Because the church recognized that Jesus himself, the one risen from the dead, had given a unique kind of authority to who? to his apostles, right? He didn't just give that unique authority to receive and impart new revelation to anybody, but it was to his chosen disciples. And so the early church would make their uh, assessments. They would stack up these books together and they would say like, well, we can't accept that book because it doesn't have any tie to the apostles. It's so late. It's, you know, it's written most all of the... uh, all of the Gnostic Gospels are written second century or later. So that's, that's way beyond the time when, when the apostles were around and when close associates of the apostles were around. So all the books in our Bible are written by an apostle or a close associate of the apostles. So someone like Mark, who is a close associate of Peter, uh, which is, and it's been recognized um, that it doesn't necessarily have to be an apostle, but someone who, who basically who personally knew the the apostle themselves. And this makes sense. The church rests on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. And their message is then centered on the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Um, John 16, going through, uh, the Bible studies are going through John's gospel. John 16, verses 12 and following, really important passage. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So we see then that these first disciples, often called apostles, were told that they would be the mouthpieces of God, that it was to these people that the Spirit of God would lead them into the truth, Um, all the truth as it pertains to then Jesus and his work and the implications of that. And we see then that the, the logic here of these verses is that Um, as the apostles, as these disciples then are speaking, as they come to understand the truth and deliver it, well, it's actually the Spirit, and it's not only the Spirit, but it's the Father and the Son. The triune God is speaking through the apostles um, in an authoritative manner. 
And these apostles, they, they were self-conscious of it. They knew their unique authority. Paul, in many of his letters, right? Why does he begin with his status as an apostle? Well, because he recognizes that it's of utmost importance that they're going to embrace this as the word of God. They've got to know that it comes from a properly sanctioned source, namely an apostle. So as I said, the church's posture since its inception has been one of coming under the word and receiving the word. So there is this corporate reception and recognition of it. Um, and, and just as a side note here, it's not surprising that we have New Testament documents right? because the Bible is a covenantal book because God is a covenantal God. So you see in the Old, Test- Old Testament, God makes covenants and then that's accompanied by revelation, right? You know, Sinai, the, the law, the Ten Commandments. So God acts in history. He brings Israel out of Egypt. He gives them a law in order to know how are they to operate under this covenant. Well, then the expectation in the new covenant was that there would be new covenant documents to cohere with that, right? So it's not surprising then that there is new revelation, but we have to understand that the limits of that were given to and through the apostles themselves. That's why he talks in Ephesians 2, the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. That's what the church is built upon. Um, so then these apostolic origins of, of books were key feature whether a book was recognized as canonical or not. As I said, the apocryphal books were written 2nd century and later, so that basically automatically uh, dismissed them. They, they, were, they were not canonical just on that fact that they didn't have apostolic connections and thus were not sanctioned by the risen Lord himself. Um, now, there is evidence out there, and you say, people will say, well, you see in the early church, Clement and, uh, and Augustine and others, well, they used these apocryphal books. They quoted from them. Well, we understand, I think we all understand, that mere use does not imply canonical status. Right? We can quote from all sorts of books because, yeah, is there truth in, in um, books that are written by non-believers? Sure, there's truth. All truth is God's truth wherever it's found. But simply because they used it did not mean that they were canonical uh, on that same level of recognition and reception. Um, And in fact, what you see in the early church is that the use of these canonical uh, books, what we have in our Bible, the use of these books compared to the use of these other books in terms of just the, the sheer quantity is, is vastly outnumbered. So the, the early church quoted from these books way more than they quoted from the other books. So just because they've used it does not imply canonical status. I mean, think of Paul, right? Paul can, he can quote from pagan poets, right? And use that then and say, oh yeah, maybe there's some truth there, but actually you need to understand it this way. And here's the the application of it in view of God's word. So, by the internal testimony of the Spirit, the early church had a predominant unity around most of the 27 books of the New Testament. At this time, the Old Testament canon had been accepted. Um, the question after Jesus arose was, well, which are, which are the New Covenant documents? Um, and the existence of heretical groups, so to going back to Bart Ehrman, well, there's so many different diverse groups. Well, is that something then that Christians were expecting? Yeah. Right? You got all these books in the Bible warning against what? False teachers. So there's, there's an awareness, there's even a canonical awareness, you could say, that there is going to be a diversity of things that are going to lead people astray. So it's actually, the fact that you've got all this diversity out there confirms even the truthfulness of what the scriptures themselves state. Um, So, as I said, before even the end of the second century, 
those professing faith in Christ, there was vast agreement. Uh, many of you have heard of the Muratorian Fragment, which was written probably around 180 AD. Uh, the list affirms the scriptural status of 22 of the 27 books. So all four Gospels, the 13 uh, letters of Paul, First and Second John, possibly Third John, Jude, and Revelation. Um, Hebrews, James, and First and Second Peter are not mentioned for whatever reason, um, but later in later lists they were they were recognized alongside those other ones. Uh, and so you have all sorts of these lists that were written down, that that indicate well here's a here's a grouping of uh, of books of works that the church recognized as being unique uh, in its sense being from God himself. So just to, to recap, do we have warrant then to believe that the Bible is God's word and that we can be confident that these 66 books and these only are the word of God? And I hope that you've seen, yes, in fact, there is warrant. They bear divine qualities which testify to its divine origins, the purity, the harmony, its power to convert and transform. Uh, the books were also recognized uh, as uniquely authoritative by a vast consensus, even from the earliest days, even from the earliest days in the church. The church did not impose this status on it, but recognized them for what they were because, they, because of the work of the, the Spirit, the internal testimony of the Spirit. And, and so they looked to these divine qualities, they looked to the apostolic origins of books to determine and to determine whether or not they should be basically indexed together as okay this is from God's this is from God himself now someone might still object to all of this and say but how can you be a fair and impartial judge of the majesty of the bible when you're already committed to that position yeah isn't this just confirmation bias circular reasoning well i would contend that Yes, there is a sense in which there is a circularity to it, but that is a circularity that is unavoidable. It's unavoidable when we're dealing with ultimate authorities. We cannot avoid this circularity. So the secularist, he defends the ultimately ultimacy of reason, right? The ultimate authority of reason, how? By using reason. Uh, the scientist defends the ultimate ultimacy of science by how? By the scientific method, right? So there's an, there's an inherent circularity when we're dealing with ultimate authorities. Michael Kruger, again, he puts it simply, for ultimate authorities to be ultimate authorities, they have to be the standard for their own authentication. So this does not mean, this does not mean that we take things on blind faith, that there are not reasonable grounds on which we are uh, placing our faith in this as the Word of God. So it's not blind faith, but we have to recognize that there has to be a stopping point somewhere in terms of where we get to when we're dealing with ultimate authorities. Right? You gotta, you gotta get somewhere or it becomes a, a pattern of infinite regression. So, God himself is the highest witness. So that's what we contend. We're gonna talk about that in a couple weeks. Um, the necessity the necessity of the existence of God. Um, God himself is the highest witness. Hebrews 6, can God swear by anyone higher than himself? No, right? So God cannot swear by anyone higher than himself. So we have to stop somewhere. And then because the Bible bears these divine fingerprints, we have every reason to believe that this is God's word and is ultimate. As I said, so we see then that there's an inescapable um, theological set of assumptions that we bring into our defense of the Word of God itself. You know, just, just very simply, we expect God to be a God who would communicate clearly to his creatures. God being transcendent and yet creating us in his image, there is that, uh, there is that relational component to it. So we would expect then that God would communicate clearly to 
his creatures in order that we would know him and worship him rightly. We also would expect that this God who intends to have the earth filled with his glory through worshipers from every tribe and tongue and nation would ensure the accurate, faithful transmission of his word even through the centuries. So even as we get into the textual debates of can we trust that the word we have today is, is an accurate reflection of the original autographic text? Well, again, there's a theological assumption that undergirds that. We believe that God is providentially working out his purposes and that his providence is very particular even over ensuring the preservation of his word for his people in order to bring him glory. So our confidence that we have the word comes from the word, but it's also from the God who we learn about in the word. So why do we trust that we have God's word and that it's with, without error in the original manuscripts, that our Bible today reflects the text of those original manuscripts? Well, because we believe in a God who is in control of the details of history, including the preservation of his word. And in response then to the person who says, well, you're just predisposed to your convictions, I would just respond that the argument cuts both ways. It cuts both ways. We all have ultimate commitments to some standard of authority, and we judge the legitimacy of that ultimate authority by that ultimate authority. You have to stop somewhere. So the question is, well, why should we let the person who rejects the Bible from the outset be the judge and not the person who accepts it? This would be like letting um, a tone-deaf person be the judge of American Idol. You know, you got like the tone-deaf people who come on and sing. It'd be like adding them and saying, well, well you judge, you judge what you see here. Um, we have no grounds, no biblical grounds for thinking that a non-Christian can rightly discern the nature of what the scriptures are. Paul himself said that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, any of you classical music fans? Anybody like to listen to classical? Okay, it's okay. Don't be, don't be afraid to be nerdy. I'm a, I like classical music. Put up your hands. Anyone heard of Joshua Bell? Joshua Bell. He's arguably probably the best violinist in the world. And years ago, he went to a subway station in D.C. He pulled out a $3.5 million Stradivarius, uh, you know, a violin, fancy violin, um, and he started playing. He opened his case. You know what the musicians do, the buskers in the subway station. He started playing. So how much money do you think Joshua Bell walked away with in the end of the day? Take a guess. 20 bucks. Slightly more. $32 and I think 17 cents. So here you have world-famous musician, on a $3.5 million Stradivarius, the quality of music was out of this world, and people just walked on by and ignored it. Why? Well, is, should, should Joshua Bell go home to his wife, if he has a wife, I don't know if he has a wife, but let's say he has a wife, should he go home to his wife and say, I'm giving it up, I'm done? No. Why? Because the problem is not with him, the problem is with the ears of the people there who weren't tuned to understand and hear the quality of the music itself, right? And likewise, I would argue that we do not question the majesty of the scriptures their divine, because of their divine qualities simply because people do not see it. Uh, that points to a problem in the recipient, in the hearer, not in the objective text itself. It points to then that theological problem that has ramifications for one's interpretation of the quality and supremacy of the Bible. So, wrapping this all up, what does this mean then for our apologetic strategy? What does it mean for our apologetic strategy? I would argue that it means that if we are going to follow a biblical model of defending the authority of Scripture, we must let the Scripture do, to the, do the defending. You've got to let the scriptures do the defending. So, very simply, we wield the sword. You defend the Bible with 
the Bible. Many times, I feel like we need to convince someone of the Bible. Many times, I think, yeah, that there's a sense that we feel like, well, I've got to convince somebody and give them, like, you know, all the reasons and take them through all the, all the evidence before I can actually open my Bible with them. Well, I would, I would actually submit to you that the methodology that the biblical authors themselves give is the other way around. What they do is they open the word and declare it and let the word as the sharp two-edged sword do its work. So it comes down to, do we believe that the Bible is God's word and that it is a sharp two-edged sword? If we do, then we're going we're gonna to unleash the word as it were. We're going to let we're going to let the, the lion loose and let it do its work. Um, so we don't set aside the Bible in our apologetics and our evangelism. We don't, just like we wouldn't set aside a key piece of our armor in the battle. Because we recognize that this entire um, apologetic, evangelistic work that we are about, there is a spiritual warfare aspect to it. We've been hearing about that from our sermon series. So you don't set aside a key piece. You don't say, well... I'm not going to take my sword into the battle. No, no, no. The sword of the Spirit you carry with you and you use. And you use it properly. You don't bludgeon people with it, but you present them with the truth. So, so if, you come, if somebody comes up to you and says, well, I, I reject the Bible, I would just say a tactic you would use is say, well, if you're, if you're as, uh, as open-minded as you claim you are, then I would just invite you to maybe sit down with me for a month and let's work through a couple of these passages and, and see what the Bible has to say about it. Let the Bible speak for itself, and then you can cast your judgment on it. Right? That, that comes from a posture of walking by faith, confidence in the Word of God itself to do and accomplish God's purposes. Uh, in my study at home, I have a picture of William Tyndale. This is what nerds do. They got, they got pictures of dead people, people from 500 years ago. William Tyndale. Tyndale, he translated the scriptures into English for the, for the common man uh, on October 6, 1536, so almost 500 years ago. Tyndale was strangled and burned at the stake for, uh, for this work, and his final words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Open the king of England's eyes. See, Tyndale knew that the issue was one of willful blindness to the majesty of God in the gospel which is given through the preaching of the word. And Satan himself hates it when people have free access to God's word, but God's people delight in that. That's why the work of translation, of getting God's word into as many languages as possible, is, is actually necessary to the mission. Um, and we can be thankful that we've got missionaries in our own midst who, who work on that uh, translation work. So why, why is it? Well, because... Satan, the enemy, knows that when the Bible is unleashed, as it were, it's, it's unstoppable. Luther, we're having our Reformation thing. This is a little plug for our Reformation deal. Um, Luther, as he sat back and reflected on the Reformation, he described it this way. So the Reformation that swept throughout Europe. He said, take me, for example. I opposed indulgences and all papists. That's Roman Catholic leaders, but never by force. So, so how did Luther engage in spiritual warfare? Not by force. What did he do? I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my Philip of Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. Had I wanted to start trouble, I could have started such a little game at Worms that even the emperor wouldn't have been safe. But what would have it been? A mugs game. I did nothing. I left it to the word. And so, uh, brothers and sisters, I would just commend that as you engage with unbelievers, you, just, you trust the inherent power of the word and the power of the spirit of God to open people's eyes. Bring the word to them. Bring the word. And just... Wait for all the wonderful things that the Lord will then do through that. I'm going to close in prayer. If you have questions, you can come up and talk to me after. Um, but I'm going to close in prayer as we get ready. Let's pray. Father, as we 
think of your word. We are grateful that you have spoken. And Lord, we are confident that we have your word in our hands because you are a God who speaks and who desires to be glorified and worshiped. And as such, we are confident that you would give us your word that we might know you. So help us to trust in it. And we pray as we have conversations with friends and family that it would that we would rely on the power of your word and spirit to do what only you can do, that we would be, in that sense, ambassadors who would bring the word of the king to people in need and that we would see great responses, responses of repentance and faith, even beginning with ourselves. And even as we anticipate now hearing from your word this morning together, uh, we ask that you would take that living and active word, that you would expose our sin ways that we need to grow and change and remind us most of all of Christ and all the riches of wisdom and knowledge and the blessings found in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.